This is Everyday Light, a perfectly imperfect reading of the One Year Daily Bible. I'm Molly, a fellow pilgrim on the road to the kingdom, and it is a joy to have you traveling this journey with me, with the Word of God as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Welcome. This is the One Year Bible Reading for August the 9th, and we are starting this morning in the Old Testament in Ezra, chapter 8, verse 21. And if you remember from last time, Ezra is leading a group of the remnant back to Jerusalem, and he's discovered that he doesn't have any Levites with him, which are so necessary for uh, worshiping the Lord at the temple that they're planning to rebuild. And so he's gathered everyone now. And there, by the Ahava Canal, I, Ezra, gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that he would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for, for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us along the way and protect us from enemies. After all, we had told the king our God protects all those who worship him, but his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us, and he heard our prayer. I appointed 12 leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 other priests to be in charge of transporting the silver, the gold, the gold bowls, and the other items that the king, his council, his leaders, and the people of Israel had presented for the temple of God. I weighed the treasure as I gave it to them and found the totals to be as follows. 24 tons of silver, 7,500 pounds of silver utensils, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls equal in value to 1,000 gold coins, two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And I said to these priests, you and these treasures have been set apart as holy to the Lord. The silver and gold is a free will offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guard these treasures well until you present them without an ounce lost to the leading priests, the Levites, and the leaders of Israel at the storeroom of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. So the priests and the Levites accepted the task of transporting these treasures to the temple of our God in Jerusalem. We broke camp at the Ahava Canal on April 19th and started off to Jerusalem, and the gracious hand of our God protected us and saved us from enemies and bandits along the way. So at last we arrived safely in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. On the fourth day after our arrival, the silver, gold, and other valuables were weighed at the temple of our God and entrusted to Merimoth, son of Uriah the priest, and to Eleazar, son of Phinehas, along with Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binui, both of whom were Levites. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the total weight was officially recorded. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. They presented 12 oxen for the people of Israel, as well as 96 rams and 77 lambs. They also offered 12 goats as a sin offering. All of this was given as a burnt offering to the Lord. The king's decrees were delivered to his lieutenants, and the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, who then cooperated by supporting the people and the temple of God. But then the Jewish leaders came to me and said, many of the people of Israel, 
and even some of the priests and Levites have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For the men of Israel have married women from these people and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. To make matters worse, the officials and leaders are some of the worst offenders. When I heard this, I tore my clothing, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of the Lord, at the God of Israel, came and sat with me because of this unfaithfulness of his people. And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees, lifted my hands to the Lord my God. I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Our whole history has been one of great sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. But now we have been given a brief moment of grace, for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He has given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted some of us relief, uh, us some relief from our slavery. For we were slaves. But in his unfailing love, our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so that we were able to rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what can we say after all of this? For once again, we have ignored your commands. Your servants, the prophets, warned us that the land we would possess was totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. You told us not to let our daughters marry their sons and not to let our sons marry their daughters and not to help those nations in any way. You promised that if we avoided these things, you would become, we would become a prosperous nation. You promised we would enjoy the good produce of the land and leave this prosperity to our children as an inheritance forever. Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt, but we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But now we are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Surely your anger will destroy us until even this little remnant no longer survives. O Lord, God of Israel, you are just. We stand before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant, though in such a condition none of us can stand in your presence. It's quite a confession, isn't it? And we're going to talk about that in our, our ending today. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13. So Paul has just corrected the church at Corinth regarding following certain church leaders um, over and above following Christ. And now he's turning to his second uh, uh, correction of them, because remember, these people are like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, um, and that is sexual immorality. 
He writes, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something so evil that even the pagans don't do it. I am told that you have a man in your church who is living in sin with his father's wife, and you are so proud of yourselves. Why aren't you mourning in sorrow and shame, and why haven't you removed this man from your fellowship? Even though I am not there with you in person, I am with you in spirit. Concerning the one who has done this, I have already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. You are to call a meeting of the church, and I will be there in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus will be with you as you meet. Then you must cast this man out of the church and into Satan's hands so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved when the Lord returns. How terrible that you should boast about your spirituality, and yet you let this sort of thing go on. Don't you realize that if even one person is allowed to go on sinning, soon all will be affected? Remove this wicked person from among you so that you can stay pure. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not by eating the old bread of wickedness and evil, but by eating the new bread of purity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin and who are greedy and who are swindlers or idol worshipers. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. What I meant to say is that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian, yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your job to judge those inside the church who are sinning in these ways. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Psalm 31. O Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be put to shame. Rescue me, for you always do what is right. Bend down and listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be for me a great rock of safety, a fortress where my enemies cannot reach me. You are my rock and my fortress. For the honor of your name, lead me out of this peril. Pull me from the trap my enemies set for me, for I find protection in you alone. I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. I hate those who worship worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I am overcome with joy because of your unfailing love. For you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to my enemy, but have set me in a safe place. Proverbs 21, 1 and 2. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. People may think they are doing what is right, but the Lord examines the heart. And we're going to end today. We, uh, we're living, we were reading <laughs> uh, The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg, and specifically we started the chapter yesterday, Life Beyond Regret, The Practice of Confession. And Ortberg can, um, encouraged us to think of confession, the proper practice of confession, about as something that brings healing and life. So he said that it was a six-step 
process. And we're gonna just talk about the first two steps today. The first is preparation. The first step is preparation. We begin by placing ourselves into the care of the Spirit and asking for help. Apart from this, confession is dangerous. If left to ourselves, we are prone to self-condemnation for things we ought not feel guilty about. Are alternatively prone to glossing over the truly ugly stains that demand attention. We need help. Clifton Fadiman tells the wonderful story about Charles Steinmetz, a genius of an electrical engineer for General Electric in the early part of the 20th century. On one occasion, after his retirement, when the other engineers around GE were baffled by the breakdown of a complex of machines, they finally asked Steinmetz to come back and see if he could pinpoint the problem. Steinmetz spent several minutes walking around the machines, then took a piece of chalk out of his pocket and made a cross mark on one particular piece of one particular machine. To their amazement, when the engineers disassembled that part of the machine, it turned out to be the precise location of the breakdown. A few days later, the engineers received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, a staggering sum in those days. This seemed exorbitant, so they returned it to him with a request that he itemize it. After a few more days, they received a second itemized bill. Making one cross mark, $1. Knowing where to put it, $9,999. So Ortberg writes, the hard part of self-examination is knowing where to place the mark. Quote, who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults, unquote, writes the psalmist. Confession always starts with our placing ourselves under the protection of God, asking him to put the cross mark on the right spot. And that really speaks to me because sometimes I can be, I don't know, I guess just very um, self-condemning in confession and to rather invite the spirit to reveal truth that we need to see is probably, uh, I think Ortbergs makes a good point there. Self-examination. The next step is self-examination. This entails taking time to reflect on our thoughts, words, and deeds, and acknowledging that we have sinned. Historically, this was known as the prayer of examine, in which we examine the state of our conscience. This is so important that in many eras, it could simply be taken for granted that followers of the way knew how to pray the prayer of examine. Francis de Sales wrote, as to the examination of conscience, everyone knows how it is to be performed. Well, I think as modern day believers, we don't, do we, most of us? A helpful, a helpful approach to self-examination is to think through various categories of sin. Probably the list most often used is that of the seven deadly sins, pride, anger, lust, envy, greed, sloth, and gluttony. Where do we stand in regard to each of these? Luther used the Ten Commandments as a form to help him examine his life. Confession should be specific, concrete, and particular. One, I lied to my boss and said I was working when I wasn't because I wanted to avoid trouble, can bring about more honesty and change than 20 variations of I haven't been truthful enough. So at the heart of it, confession involves taking res appropriate responsibility for what we have done. This is not easy to do. We try to slip out of it. What starts as a confession often ends up as an excuse. I didn't mean to yell at you. I was having a bad day. To confess means to own up the fact to the fact that our behavior wasn't just the result of bad parenting, poor genes, jealous siblings, a chemical imbalance from too many Twinkies. Any or all of those factors may be involved because human behavior is a complex thing. But confession means saying that somewhere in the mix was a choice. 
and the choice was made by and it does not need to be excused, explained, or even understood. The choice needs to be forgiven. The slate has to be wiped clean. So I hope today you take some time uh, to sit before the Lord and uh, live beyond regret. Have a beautiful day. Love you all.